Hey, Consumed Listener, this is your host, Jamie Lewis. Before I start this episode, can I ask you a little favor? Will you please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and or review Consumed? It helps other like-minded people find the podcast and it gives love to the folks who sponsor it. And listen, if you don't have anything nice to say, well, just imagine me channeling your mother here, okay? Okay, here's the episode and thank you. It's Consumed, the conversational food and wine podcast covering the flavor of California's Central Coast and beyond. This season, I'm covering lots of different eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers, including a mushroom expert, the team behind San Luis Obispo County's first Michelin star, a family of winemakers, an outspoken wine and food critic, a culinary-obsessed high school student, local food activists, pupusa enthusiasts, state historians, and more. Hungry? Thirsty? Let's get consumed. People have been escaping the big city to come to California's Central Coast for centuries. One of the most famous people to do so was William Randolph Hearst, the media tycoon and politician whose career as the owner of the largest, most powerful publishing company in the nation began in 1887. His escape was the ranch he inherited from his father, a 240,000-acre seaside estate in San Simeon, California. Hearst camped on this ranch for decades before working with architect Julia Morgan to design a house for the hilltop overlooking the Pacific. The result is now known as Hearst Castle, a 90,000-square-foot estate where Hearst entertained the who's who of his age, including people like Charlie Chaplin, Clark Gable, Winston Churchill, Hedda Hopper, Greta Garbo, George Bernard Shaw, and many more. In 1958, the Hearst family gifted Hearst Castle to the state of California, making it a California state park and a museum. If you've ever been to Hearst Castle, you'll recall the incredible dining room, the ketchup and mustard on the table, the paper napkins, and the medieval tapestries on the walls. I wanted to know about how Mr. Hearst ate on his Enchanted Hill, so I asked a couple experts over. Dr. Amy Hart is a historian with California State Parks, and Tara Stevenson is director of development for the foundation at Hearst Castle. We talked about Hearst's grazing habits, his double-vaulted wine cellar, and his favorite late-night snack, Welsh rarebit, for which I posted the recipe at letsgetconsumed.com. Okay, here are Amy Hart and Tara Stevenson. So we are talking about William Randolph Hearst today, which is interesting given the fact that he's long dead, long gone, um, but had a massive impact, not just on our area, but on, I mean, the nation and the world, really. Um, I guess the reason I'm curious about him, as I was saying before we started rolling, I love, love art history majored in it in school. I love Julia Morgan, an incredible person who was given a lot of respect at a time that women architects were not. Um, And I love that Hearst has this incredible collection that was then given over to the state. And um, I really like the Hearst tagline. It's called a museum like no other because it's a museum that's been preserved. You get to walk through it. It's in the middle of nowhere, really, um, up on a hill overlooking just the most spectacular property. Um, and so I, you know, I'm always curious. So Amy, tell me a little bit about how Mr. Hearst ate. 
Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that we're in an isolated place today in San Simeon with Hearst Castle, because back then in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, it was much more isolated. Yeah, even more so. Highway 1 was still under construction. Mm. Um, So it would have been very difficult for um, items like food items and even visitors to make it to Hearst Castle. And so they'd have to go up winding roads from the train station at San Luis Obispo was one option. They mm-hmm. could come by boat. Um, they could come by plane to Hearst personal landing strip that he built at the bottom of Hearst really? Castle. Not there anymore? Oh, still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there are a few options, but it was much harder to transport goods and people back then. And so um, almost out of necessity, a lot of the food was grown and raised and harvested at the Hearst Castle estate. And that included the cattle ranch, which still exists um, at the Hearst Ranch, um, and the huge poultry farm, which included things uh, beyond just the typical turkey, but also pheasant and partridge and guinea fowl and duck. Um, he and, was a fowl fan. Oh, right? a big fowl fan. If you look at the menus that were printed out for the meals, the kind of formal dinners, they almost always included some sort of fowl. Yeah. And we know from, from records, from statements made by visitors and staff, that one of his favorite meals was pressed duck. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for somebody who owned a cattle ranch, which I think the ranch predates the home, right? Yeah, exactly. So Hearst's father, George Hearst, uh, started buying property at the Piedra Blanca area of San Simeon in 1865. He was very successful in the silver mines during the California gold rush. And he started purchasing just large swaths of property along the central coast and used them as cattle ranches. Um, and so that's how Hearst grew up knowing the property was as a cattle ranch. And that's how it continued to be used throughout his lifestyle and his life and beyond. Yeah. I'm very intrigued by George Hurst. I hear not such a nice man. Maybe not such a nice man. I don't know. But he, I, maybe I've just watched too much Deadwood. Have I watched too much Deadwood? <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I didn't know him personally, so it's hard to say. But yes. I do think the world of the California Gold Rush um, required some gruffness, um, some individual, you know, entrepreneurship, and you had to really kind of take these deals when you found them. And he was very successful with predicting where these great, um, mining locations would be and then profiting from them. Right. Oh, you're good, Amy. You are so (laughs) good. Um, okay. So growing so much of the stuff there, and maybe we should actually back up a little bit. So, so William Randolph Hearst, was he grew up under his mother's wing very much, I think, right? Um, stop me if I'm saying anything wrong, but but traveled the world as a little guy, I think, right? That's right. He was the only child of Phoebe and George Hurst. Um, and so Phoebe very much um, loved to take William Randolph Hurst everywhere that she went, and that included on uh, trips across Europe from a very young age. So he grew up uh, seeing some of these um, ancient ruins and then medieval monasteries and churches, and it really inspired his love and appreciation of art later in life. Yeah, I respect that so much about her, mm-hmm. that she wanted him with her, took her everywhere. He saw all of this and it got into his bloodstream, I mm-hmm. think. And also he loved his mother and his mother appreciated that. And so she engendered a, an appreciation for it in him. Mm-hmm. Um, but even with all of these beautiful, fancy things that he, you know, he wanted to build this estate, it took a long time, 1917 to 1948, 47? 
So yeah, 1919 is when William Randolph Hearst first approached his architect, Julia Morgan, okay. about building something uh, more comfortable, as he put it, um, on his San Simeon estate, where he was used to going and camping as a child. I mean, I think we would consider it sort of glamping today, where he would have kind of tents set up and meals served by servants. But he was getting older. He was in his 50s in 1919, and he realized he wanted something more permanent built there for his growing family. And so he approached Julia Morgan, who was the first licensed female architect in California, so a really impressive figure. Um, By that time, she was in the height of her career. She'd already designed hundreds of buildings across California. She was a California native, just like him, and so they felt like they had a lot in common, and he really appreciated her architectural design style. Um, And so she started building this amazing property, which would expand over the years to become what is today Hearst Castle. And when Hearst finally had to leave the castle for the last time in 1947 due to his failing health, the castle was still incomplete. And you can ah. see that as you when you tour it today, that there's parts where it's just rough concrete, there's no plaster oh. siding completed. And we've left it that way purposefully to demonstrate how this was an ever-evolving and expanding project. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Is that is any of that on the facade at the front? Is there un, uh, unfinished areas on the facade? Yeah, absolutely. On the west terrace, as you kind of enter up um, through most of the tours where they begin, yeah. uh, you can see this sort of exposed concrete area where there's yep. going to be some grand entryway and fountains and uh, that just couldn't get completed. Wow. Okay. So, so he is building this incredible place has huge plans for it, but yes, it takes a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me at what point, didn't he, they built the, um, like the outbuildings or the cottages first, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when they were there, how would they be eating? How would they be dining? Um, and was he entertaining at the time when it was before the, the grand, uh, the, the main estate? Yeah, so he could have guests, but it would be on a much smaller scale. And at that time, when it was early in the construction progress process, it was really a place for his family to go for vacation, as they did before, as kind of a camping spot. And it really grew grew from there when he was able to build the main house, which we call Casa Grande today. And that's where you get the the real kitchen and the formal dining room, which we call the refectory. Mm -hmm. And that's where he could start seating, you know, 10s and 20s and 30s, numbers of guests at a time and have these elaborate parties and celebrations um, and movie showings and all these things that Hearst Castle is known for. Yeah. So he ends up building the Casa Grande, the refectory, which I, I I don't know the technical definition of that, but I know it comes from a monastic tradition, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he builds out that. I've done the kitchen tour, and the kitchen is small. I mean, I wouldn't say it's not it's not small, but it's just so industrial feeling and so different from the rest of the property. Um, that kitchen tour, if you like kitchens and history, it is really cool um, because you get to see a lot of the old tools, a lot of the old refrigeration. Um, but anyway, tell me, tell me a little bit about the kinds of foods, I guess, and the preparation style back there. Yeah, so the kitchen was industrial, and it was meant to be the kitchen of a working ranch, and that's how yeah. it functioned. And it does continue on a little bit beyond what's shown on the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so downstairs underneath the kitchen 
are the large cooling rooms where you would age beef or cool vegetables um, before they were served. So kind of storage rooms down there. Um, And this is where they would um, process all the food that was grown and harvested on the ranch before it was served in the formal dining room. So that could include, um, you know, meat processing, uh, the harvesting and processing of fruits and vegetables, and then the preserving. So there is home canning and preserving going on as well. Yeah. I saw that there's quite a staff, um, but there is even a chef just for staff. Is that right? Yes, that is right. I mean, there was. There was a chef only for staff to take care of them. Yes, that's right. Um, And what I find interesting is to talk about kind of the underrepresented voices of Hearst Castle. So a lot of these people who are critical to the construction and the maintenance of Hearst Castle, many of whom were first-generation immigrants. And so we see Chinese cooks working on staff. We see Portuguese uh, construction workers Mm -hmm. uh, constructing the castle. And we see Swiss-Italian immigrants um, who had come and started dairy farms in the nearby area of Harmony, which they're now famous for as a town. Mm -hmm. They would work seasonally on the construction crews at Hearst Castle. Um, And so these were a lot of the people who were really essential for the castle to run and operate and to serve these kind of famous guests who would come and visit Hearst there. Yeah, and I and I read recently that um, the the San, old San Simeon schoolhouse was the schoolhouse for the children of the people working on the ranch and on the property, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it is really amazing to think about the time period because much of the construction occurred during the 1930s, so mm. the depths of the great of great right. depression and This was a very isolated area where employment opportunities were scarce. And so many people along the North Coast ended up being employed by Hearst to work on this construction project. And in many ways, it benefited the local community that this was this ever-evolving and expanding project that needed more and more workers to be employed on it. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too. I was going to note in regards to the school, Hearst's Mm -hmm. mother was a teacher, So that was, you know, so education was always an important factor in his life. In addition, she, I believe, founded what is now the PTA. Um, Like the concept of the PTA? Yes. The Parent Teacher Association. Isn't that right, Amy? Pretty sure. Yeah. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You uh, say it. Yeah, yeah. Phoebe Hurst, yeah. And and also, you know, you you could argue that Phoebe Hurst, you know, inspired his design ethics aesthetic yeah his love of art she as we mentioned took home around the world as a child and that made a big impact on his entire life she also introduced him to julia morgan oh she did yes okay mm-hmm. yeah phoebe hers has a huge role to play absolutely okay yeah and so obviously she's pioneering architect a woman yeah. of firsts and worked with him for many, many years. Yeah. And and Phoebe's um, education background also kind of brings to light Hearst's, you know, it it changes the way we view him traveling the world. She really, it was intentional, it sounds like, to introduce him to different worldviews, to Absolutely. show him Absolutely. all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And thinking about how difficult travel was at the time, too. You know, she went to great lengths to educate him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah changed, I think, his perspective or educated his perspective on the world and on women. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me tell me about what he would sit down to with guests. What kind of foods did he request? 
Um, yeah. So as we mentioned, it was a very isolated place. And so a lot of the food was going to be grown on site. Yeah. Um, the dairy products came from on site, the eggs from the poultry farm, as well as the, the fowl themselves that were served on the menu. Um, the beef, uh, a lot of it came from the area. And you can still, in the formal gardens today, see the wide variety of citrus trees that Hearst yeah. planted. Um, and all of those fruits would then be served on the table as well. Yeah. Um, we have menus. We have um, old menus, and I saw. <laughs> I just I I have what does somebody call it historical snobbery, where we look back and it's like, oh, these menus are so silly. Um, but at the time, it was like the height of fashion in some ways. Like, you know, nine to noon is breakfast, two o'clock is lunch, luncheon, and then nine o'clock is dinner. And the things that were served, you know, range from, oh gosh, you know, fresh green beans on on the luncheon menu, and then um, like an herb omelet on the luncheon menu, um, prime rib, I think, something like that, a tender prime rib for dinner. Oh yeah, you yeah. know better than I do. What are these items that are? Yeah, on there? so there is often at least one kind of meat entree dish, yeah. um, and then a lot of locally sourced vegetables and fruit that would accompany it. Often multi-course meals, especially for dinner, which was the more formal yes. of the meals. And they, it would often occur around 9 p.m. at night, which I think might seem late to some of us in our kind of American norms yes. of dinner. But we have to remember that Hearst was a newspaper publisher. And so for him, that was often the beginning of the night. Huh. Um, and he would stay up often till 2 or 3 a.m. preparing his headlines for his newspapers for the next day before mm -hmm. going to bed. And it's often why he liked breakfast to start a little later and extend into the day yeah. and then push back every meal a little bit later in the day. Yeah. Um, and that was just part of his the guest experience that was created around um, his schedule, but that everyone accommodated and had a great time with together. Um, and something that was also incorporated in the menus, which I think is is great and shows how important the movie experience was to Hearst, yeah. is that um, at the bottom of the dinner menu, you would just see the film being showed that night and it was printed on the menu just after the food. Yeah. And so, you know, it was such an integral part to the guest experience that after dinner, guests would then shuffle into the movie theater mm -hmm. and they would all view a movie screening together, uh, which would often start at 11 a.m and run till midnight or one. And that was kind of the schedule that was kept when you're at Hearst Castle. Dinner and a show. Mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> I wish every time we went out to dinner at somebody's house, we would you know, shuffle into the private theater and watch a movie. I think that sounds amazing. And his own real newsreels, I think, right? Were they Hearst reels that, that were being shown? Yeah, often. And Hearst also had um, his hand in kind of the movie industry. And so it would be movies yeah. that he was involved in producing or maybe that his partner, Marion Davis, had starred in as well. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I want to take a minute to shout out to a couple of good friends of this podcast. Consumed is sponsored by Mid-State Containers, Cargo Storage Containers, and Refrigerated Shipping Containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how Mid-State Containers could change your life, but the truth is, many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use Mid-State for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods, for private collections, and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Mid-State Containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root cellars. 
My guest from season 10, Krista Flieger from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her mid-state container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a mid-state container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. Slow Life Magazine also sponsors the Consumed Podcast. Slow Life looks at what's going on in San Luis Obispo, including the arts, real estate, business, and the people impacting culture here. For the magazine, I just wrapped up my food column on crepes, which you may know as a French street food, but did you know that every February 2nd is the day of the crepe? In France on that holiday, people try to flip a crepe in the pan with their non-dominant hand, and if they do it, they're guaranteed a year of prosperity. See? You can learn so much from Slow Life Magazine. Get your copy at slowlifemagazine.com. So I want to know the difference between how the people were eating up on the hill versus maybe how the folks were eating. I guess it's probably still up on the hill, but but the people who worked there, what do you have any idea, any insight into what they ate? Um, do we know? I, I don't know. I don't know if I've heard much about that, but I was going to say, Amy might know, but yeah. what's notable to me is that he, he lives on a, on a working cattle ranch, mm-hmm. a large working cattle ranch, and his son reports that he really wasn't a meat and potatoes guy. Yeah. And I just thought that was interesting. You'd think growing up in that, that he would be. He much preferred fowl. Yeah. Um, it's reported that he was very much a grazer. That yeah. he rarely ate breakfast. If he did, it was late. And it was some fruit, maybe. Lunch was an omelet. And then these big dinner extravaganzas. Yeah. Um, but he was very much a grazer. I think it was said that he rarely passed a bowl of uh, you know, nuts or fruit and candy that he didn't graze at. Yes. Um, I mean, that's kind of my kind of eating. That's how my so. husband eats. It mm-hmm. makes me crazy. Because I'm a I meal person. I am so like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But yes, I saw that he was a grazer, mm-hmm. which is interesting. That's interesting. And also, despite entertaining political figures, Hollywood, you know, royalty, he wasn't much of a drinker. He was against prohibition. Mm-hmm. He didn't drink liquor, but he regularly drank wine and beer with dinner. Interesting. So I thought that was kind of an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Do we know what kinds of wine and beer he was drinking? I know that it was good wine and beer. Quite <laughs> a collection yeah. for not being much of a drinker and yeah. actually frowning upon people who were obviously inebriated. Yeah, those people would be asked to leave, maybe take him straight down to the train station. Wow. Despite that, he had quite a wine cellar, um, and a really impressive collection that Amy probably could speak a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I think today we recognize California wines as some of the best wines in the world, but during Hearst time, France. they were from, exactly, they were from France, they were from Germany, mm-hmm. they were from Europe. So that's really what we see in his wine cellar is German Mosels, French Burgundies, French Bordeaux. Wow. Um, and his wine cellar could hold up to 10,000 bottles of wine. So we know that he planned for a big collection. Are there any bottles still up there? I mean, like full bottles? Mm -hmm. Full bottles sitting up there. Am I allowed to talk about that? Is it too dangerous to even mention? (laughs) Believe me, they are in quite a vault. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because this wine cellar was literally built during Prohibition in the early 1920s. And so um, there's double vault doors that close it off to the rest of the house, uh, partly because of fear of fire, but obviously also because of fear of theft at the time. So it was definitely kept under lock and key. 
and perfect cellaring conditions, I'm guessing. Exactly, mm-hmm. yes. So it was designed to be built um, in the basement level on the north side of the house where it stays yes. cooler all the time. Um, a very purposeful design to keep the temperature consistent for the wines. You are telling me that there are perhaps Bordeaux from, gosh, I mean, turn of the century, of the 20th century, up in the vault, full and nobody's drinking them. <laughs> that is super cool. I mean, obviously, everything is valuable up there. But to me, that's like, <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> extremely valuable. Um, I, I read something. I think it was probably that his son, who was also a George, I think. His son was George, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I read, he's the one who has spoken quite a bit, I think, about the way his father ate. Um that he, that um, William Randolph Hearst was not actually into super fancy uh, Mediterranean food. He wasn't meat and potatoes, but he wasn't super, super, mm-hmm. um, you know, luxurious food. And you can kind of see that borne out in the fact that he had paper napkins, didn't he, up at the up in the dining room? Was that even when there were really, really fancy dinners? Yeah, so it's a fun dichotomy because in the end, this was a working ranch and Hearst always referred to Hearst Castle as the ranch when he went up there. Um, And so he had paper napkins, he had ketchup and mustard bottles on the table and it was all there on the middle of this monastic table in this Gothic style (laughs) refectory building. Um, And so it is a very funny dichotomy to think about. Yeah, and it's like Heinz 57, right? (laughs) And, And yellow mustard. And was that a new thing at the time? Was that kind of like... Were condiments like that sort of fashionable and new? Or was that still kind of pedestrian the way we look at it now? <laughs> well, I, I mean, what I think is, you know, he, he grew up camping on yeah. this property. He loved the land. He loved camping there. And he loved that vibe. It's just that he got to an age where he's like, I think I'd like to be a little more comfortable. Yeah. Can we just, you know, initially with Julia Morgan, he said, let's just build a little something. Yeah. I don't think his original intention was to build something so large and so grand, but eventually, you know, it's argued that he had quite, he had such a, an art collection that he built this place in order to house his art oh, instead of, you know, you might build a home and then say, now, how would I like to decorate it? He had to find a place to house his collections, his yeah. diverse collections. So, but his first love was just the camping and the land. And I think he wanted to keep that vibe in some respect, yeah. despite who might be, you know, the dignitaries and Hollywood royalty that might be there. The ketchup and mustard stayed on the table. I love it. I love that he's like, I want what I want, mm-hmm. and this is what I want, and this is what it's going to be. That's right. Very, I, I mean, I get that sense in every part of his life that he's just like a little particular, wants what he wants, and he gets what he wants. And he's earned the right to get what he wants, right? Sure. Um, tell me about that refectory, um, about the antiquities in that room. How, I mean, because it, it extends to the ceiling, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. It's um, a 16th century Spanish uh, monastic ceiling. It's absolutely beautiful. If people haven't seen it yet on tour, um, it's really striking. It makes you want to just walk around looking up as you go through the room. Um, And it all goes down to the monastic table, which is a thin, long table designed for um, for monks to sit all on one end facing the same end. But of course, he doubled that seating and had people sit across from each other. And so it leads to a very long, thin table that 
flows the length of this long room. Yeah. And is that the room that has the tapestries? The Is it the unicorn tapestries on the wall? Yeah. So there's um, tapestries throughout Casa Grande, but in the refectory also there's 17th century Flemish tapestries. So yes. you get, yeah, antiques from 15th all the way through the 17th, 18th centuries adorning that room that's then um, has this great dichotomy with the more, you know, modern food and condiments being served on the table. Yep. Um, what do we know about the desserts? I'm curious about that. I saw on the menus that ices were on there, which was probably really special because of refrigeration and freezing and all of that. Is that like Italian ices that we think of, or is it like ice cream? Do you know? I think, I think both were going on, right? He had an ice maker down in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. He had multiple refrigerators, so it was a he big focus. definitely had a freezer, but I'm okay. not sure. I saw also that there's ice on the menu, and yeah. I wondered mm-hmm. if that was a particular dessert or if he was just saying, I we have, have ice. ice. Ice is here. Because, oh, my gosh, <laughs> that might be rare. it. Yep. Yeah, the fact that the ice was I on the menu. Ice. That is so cool. <laughs> um that actually reminds me of the, if you've read East of Eden, the refrigeration story on the train, um, that uh, it becomes a huge failure in that book. But that was detailing the same time that Hearst was alive, refrigeration was a huge point of discussion. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, John Steinbeck, I know, worked on Highway 1, the Big Sur section of Highway 1, which, I don't know, Hearst and Steinbeck are kind of champions of our area, really. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, stories like failures of refrigeration on trains are kind of what made the Central Coast agricultural industries what they were in that time. We see things like butter and cheese being able to be shipped out of places like Harmony and survive the trip to the larger markets when just milk itself couldn't have survived that because of the problems with refrigeration. Yeah. And Harmony was a bustling, a big deal, right? People yeah. from LA, San Francisco were having butter from Harmony. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the fact that Harmony was a big deal. I mean, two big deals by each other, next door to each other, Hearst yeah. and that. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that Hearst would stop there on his way up to Hearst Castle and pick up cheese on his way. So if it was good enough for Hearst, it was, it was a popular place. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Tell me a little bit about the restoration of, not restoration necessarily, but the, the preservation of Hearst Castle and, and how it came to be owned by the state. Yeah, so William Randolph Hearst always knew he wanted this to be a publicly accessible place. And when he passed away, he first wanted it to be donated to the UC system. Um, His mother, Phoebe, had been very involved at UC Berkeley um, in developing the campus there. And so um, he'd really inherited that love of that public education system. Mm. Um, But UC, the University of California system, wasn't able to take it on at that time. And so the state of California was able to take it over and um, preserve the castle to this day with the help of nonprofits like the Foundation at Hearst Castle. Yeah, and I want to hear about that. So, so the Foundation at Hearst Castle, um, what is your primary job over there? Well, the foundation was started in 1985. It was formerly called Friends of Hearst Castle. And initially it was started to just assist with the preservation, assist California State Parks that owns and manages Hearst Castle. Um, and over the years, it's uh, expanded and and we changed our name to the foundation a few years ago. Um, expanded our mission to not only include the preservation of Hearst Castle and the restoration of the twenty five thousand I believe pieces of art in this collection totally to help with that, yeah. um, but also to offer education programs 
um, our key, in, one key initiative right now is uh, what we call our STEAM program. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful education program designed specifically for middle school kids from under-resourced communities throughout California and beyond, as now we offer it as not only an in-person field trip, but also as a virtual, uh, actually a multi-day virtual experience. Oh, wow. So that way, um, you know, we can grant that access to kids all over the country or right. further. Right. Uh, we're quite excited about that. So it's preservation and education that we help to fund. Um, coincidentally, I've been working with Amy just recently on, as you can imagine, we host fundraisers. Yes. But right now, Hearst Castle's closed. And that was one of the primary ways, right? Was to to have people up to the castle for something absolutely, special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, we love donations. Yeah. And um, we have membership, annual membership opportunities. And we host fundraising events. But right now, with the castle closed, we're working on a variety of virtual fundraisers. Mm -hmm. And one that I'm really excited about right now is called A Taste of Hearst, coincidentally. Yeah. And we actually just filmed a, a little introduction to that particular experience with Amy and Jim Allen mm -hmm. explaining just what we're talking about today is mm -hmm. what produce, what was grown here, what was raised here, how did that influence the guest experience? Mm -hmm. um, and so should you participate in this particular virtual event, uh, you know, you, you get a really broad education on exactly what that was. And then that leads into a really fun live, um, what's essentially a lesson in making a beautiful cheese board. Oh my goodness. So, and yeah. who is that with, um, Lulu, the cheese, who is that with? Recently, Lulu just catered an event for us on Saturday. I saw at, that. In San Simeon. Okay. Yes, and she's wonderful. Um, we're potentially working with Meg Quinn okay. um, on this particular event, yeah. although we would aspire to host several, and so yeah. we very well may work with Lulu in the yeah, future. Yeah. yeah, she's great. But any guests that participate in this would receive... Um, an elevated curated kit of everything they need Fun. in advance. Yeah. So not only a variety of cheeses and the cheese board, but crystal wine glasses and Hearst Ranch Winery wine. Oh, and fun. You know, fancy cheese knives. You get this beautiful package yeah. and then a live stream engaged experience. And you get to see parts of the castle you otherwise either absolutely wouldn't or very rarely yeah. would see. Um, plus get an education on... Um, yeah, Virtu that. virtual um, mm -hmm. makes it possible to see things that otherwise you couldn't see. I had not thought about that because honestly, I mean, the magic of, of Hearst Castle is being there, right? Yeah. I mean, we all acknowledge sure. that that's why. It doesn't ever replace it. No, it's super special. But the wear and tear on the property, and I'm sure, you know, um, to some degree liability on the property itself you can't see those things. Right. And so this virtual gives you access to things otherwise not seeable, which is pretty cool. And that's a great point because not only is this a California state park and a historic landmark, but it is an accredited museum. Yeah. So we do have to be very careful. Security is a major concern. Yeah. So, um, you know, Hearst Castle is closed right now. So yeah. this is a way people can access it. But even if it was open, you're still able to see and experience parts of the castle that you otherwise probably wouldn't. Right. Yeah. Once more, I want to give love to a couple other podcast friends. 
Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Now hear this. Wine and Spirits magazine named their top 100 wineries of 2021, and the good people at Native Nine Wines in Santa Maria made the list. Not only are they among the top 100 wineries in the world, they are also one of 10 producers from the Central Coast on that list. So side note, go Central Coast, a tenth of the world's top producers. Native Nine produces Pinot Noir, only Pinot Noir, from organically farmed, minimally irrigated, hand-harvested vines that owner James Onaveros planted in 1997 when he was just in his early 20s studying crop science at Cal Poly University. James grows eight Pinot Noir clones on his Rancho Onaveros vineyard, and winemaker Justin Willett shepherds the wine to bottle with a distinct focus on whole cluster fermentation. If you've been looking for the right bottle to share at the holiday table or to gift to a loved one, look for the Native Nine link on the consumed website or visit ranchosdeonaveros.com. You're ramping up, am I allowed to say potentially for 2022, right? Is that yeah, okay? we're hoping by the spring of 2022 to okay. reopen. Yeah. Great. Um, in terms of tours, are you going to start pretty small, like back to basics, or are you going to have expanded opportunities? Because I know over the years the the tours have really, they've started to specialize, which I think is so cool. Yeah. Um, actually, just before we had to close down due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we were getting ready to launch our Julia Morgan tour, which yes. is going to be specifically focused on the architect of Hearst Castle. So it'll be great to ramp th- things like that up again. Yeah, that's cool. I would look forward to that. Mm-hmm. As a local, I mean, we have the opportunity to go up over and over again, you know, and it's pretty special. But but I have recommended to people, if you've never been, definitely do like the, the Grand Rooms tour, the mm-hmm. entry level mm-hmm. to see everything. Yeah, that is the great kind of entry level tour. And then maybe for listeners of this podcast, they might appreciate the Cottages and Kitchens tour, yes. which takes you through the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Um, and also we're coming up on the holidays. This is going to release de- December 1st. So um, not that people can go up for this holiday season, but definitely go up for the evening tours with the lights. Um next year, Mm -hmm. which Hearst loved the holidays, I know, and that was important to him to decorate and be festive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we're looking forward to being able to decorate again for the next holiday season and put up our trees and all the Christmas decorations we typically do. Yeah. The first tour I ever went on was an evening tour. It made such an impact on me. Um, who knew I'd be working at the castle 10 years later, but one of the things that's so beautiful about a lot of the evening tours is we have, uh, living history, they call it, right? Living history, docents who dress in period attire. And I remember walking up to the Neptune pool and having all these, uh, living history docents backlit by the sunset and seeing their hats and their long cigarettes. And it just brought so, so much more to the feel of the guest experience up yeah. there. If one, say, had a flair for theater, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and wanted to dress up and hang out at Hearst Castle and be one of those. Do you accept people just, I mean, do you have to be a buddy? Is it an inside invitation or anything like that? My understanding is there's quite an application process and a waiting list because a lot of people want to do it. (laughs) Um, I can say that at the foundation's uh, fundraising events that we host on the Hilltop, that we always welcome and encourage people to dress. To dress up. In 20s, 30s attire because it's so fun. It is so fun. We've even had gentlemen come to um, swims. To, we, we host uh, events at the Neptune Pool and the Rome Pool, and we've had gentlemen come in um, professionally designed men's swimwear like from the onesies. 20s. Yes. <laughs> Striped wool. Yes. So fabulous. Wool? Oh, it was yes. made of wool, these swimsuits from yes. the era, which seemed incredibly uncomfortable to me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love it. These are the things that keep history alive, though, right? To really be in touch with sure. um, the wool swimwear, striped mm-hmm. wool swimwear. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask you about... Oh, no, I was just going to mention that... So nowadays, people cannot cook in the kitchen at Hearst Castle for obvious reasons. You can't cook with historic items and um, just for the preservation of the items themselves. But... Uh, if somebody did want to cook up there, my husband and I volunteered for a dinner at one point, and you really have to camp all over again if you want to cook for a benefit, you know, for a, a party. So we, do you have to haul your own water in even? Is it something like that? It's like really extreme, I think. Um, for our fundraisers, we, we essentially build kitchens yes. on portions of the patio that are safe enough to build on. Sometimes we will we will cover absolutely everything, even on the ground. Um, yes, we, you know, we rent ovens, yeah. tables. In, in fact, when I work with caterers, I give them a heads up and say, think about if you were to cater a luxury event in Big Sur at a campsite with nothing. Yeah. That's where we're going to start and yeah. we'll build from there because it's a museum. Yeah. Right. So we, we don't want, we want to preserve. I mean, our, our mission is to preserve yes. and, and, and to protect and restore things. So, yeah, so we just, we just build the kitchens and, and we haul up water and ice as needed and yeah. uh, caterers are very impressive and we've yeah. gotten very good at planning all the details in advance and we we are honored that California State Parks actually allows us to host events on the hilltop yep. um, several times a year. Totally. I, I think that it's absolutely right. And I'd never even thought about protecting the ground outside as yes. part of the preservation effort. Yep. Um, no, my only point is just to say that here we are back to camping. You know, you have to camp <laughs> once again back up on the hill, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Okay, tell me about yourself. So, so Tara, how did you wind up becoming involved in administration for the foundation? That's a great question. Um, I went to school in, at UC Santa Barbara and worked there for about 25 years in marketing and operations, mostly with in the hospitality sector, whether it be in publishing or digital advertising, marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and long story short, I fell in love with someone who lived in this area, started looking for jobs up here, and I came across this wonderful nonprofit organization yeah. at Hearst Castle of all places, and I thought, why not? So let's yeah. check it out. Um, and it, we're a small organization, so what they needed touched on um, 
my broad experience mm -hmm. in marketing operations, events, et cetera. So yeah, that's yeah. how it happened. Next thing I knew, I was interviewing in front of the board of directors and it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. And yeah. it's nice to work somewhere where the mission is so clear and we're doing a lot of good. Yeah. Especially for kids. Yes. I mean, I personally, you know, think what's the point of preserving a place like this, restoring the art and being so careful with the collection, if not to use it to inspire kids mm -hmm. and next generations and using the example of someone like Julia Morgan to empower yeah. kids now so yeah well and the castle is extreme it is so extreme and Over kids top, my kids absolutely. have been yeah. and it really does touch a nerve with them first of all yeah. just the effort to get there yes to just get the up drive there. up is like a disneyland ride for these kids it really the is mm -hmm. yeah and so then to be there to see them walk into the room um and you know gasp at the size of it yep. and the extremity of it um Am I right? And I, I read somewhere that um, the Harry Potter dining hall is based on the refectory. Is that a rumor? Is that an urban I legend? I heard that as well. I mean, I could I see mean, them drawing from that room for inspiration, definitely. Yeah, the flags and everything. Yeah, just I'm thinking of kids. And one other thing about kids, um, I grew up in Napomo, so we would go up to San Simeon for the day and mm -hmm. um, go to the castle every once in a while. And my brother was really young. He's he's five years younger than me, and he was really young when we went his first time. And at the time, there were beepers, like sensors, off of the carpet. You're very, it's very prescribed, you know, where you can and can't walk. Yeah. And there was, if you walked off the path, it would beep. I don't know if it still does that. <laughs> But he found out he really loved the beep, I'm pretty sure is the, is the story. And so he was beeping the whole way around, um, just mortifying my mother. But anyway, yeah, as a kid who grew up going up, up the hill, it was pretty funny. So Amy, how did you get into, how did you become a state historian that is focused on Hearst Castle in many ways? Um, yeah, so I actually came from the academic world. Um, I was finishing my PhD in the history department at UC Santa Cruz, um, in 2019 is when I finally finished, which is great because it was luckily just before COVID-19 yeah. really added a lot of challenges to completing a graduate degree. Mm. So I was um, finishing that and I ended up getting a job lecturing in the history and women and gender studies departments at Cal Poly. Mm -hmm. So I was working down here as I was finishing up my dissertation. And um, as I was going through that and imagining where I would want to be after finishing um, this degree on the Central Coast in Santa Cruz, I knew I loved this whole area, this part of California. And this job happened to open with state parks cool. um, to be a historian um, in San Luis Obispo County at Hearst Castle um, just as I was finishing up. And so I thought, well, that sounds like a great opportunity to kind of apply my love of history to reaching out to the public and doing this great work um, with this public agency state parks and so I applied for the position and was able to get it and it's been great so that's that was, magic yeah it was two years ago now what was your um, dissertation what was your focus at the time was it women and gender studies so yeah I did um, a designated emphasis in feminist studies at UC Santa Cruz mm -hmm. they have an amazing feminist studies department there um, and my dissertation was actually on female social reformers in the antebellum period of US history so oh, the wow. 1840s and 50s leading up to the Civil War yeah. and women who started the women's rights movement and the abolition movement. And I really looked at the ways they networked together and supported each other in these social reform efforts and made them stronger as they worked together. Mm -hmm. And so I was happy to get to study people that I really uh, looked up to and were inspiring to me. Uh, a lot of other people st 
study, you know, dictators and really unfortunate <laughs> people when they study history. Yeah. And so that was um, this great opportunity to study these amazing women. And it was something I loved focusing on. And so um, it's great now to get to work in a place where strong women are really the backbone of the sure. place. Um, when we talk about Julia Morgan and, and Phoebe Hurst and their kind of inspiration for Hearst Castle. Yeah. Did you always have a passion for, um, are you native Californian? I am. Yeah. So I've okay. always been in California. I knew I wanted to stay in California. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the challenge of the academic life. Often, if you want to go into teaching at the university level, you have to kind of be willing to move anywhere. Yes, right. And at one point I thought I would be willing to do that. And then when you're finishing up um, the PhD at Santa Cruz and push comes to stuff, you think, well, maybe it'd be great to find something here. And um, I'm so lucky that I didn't have to settle for anything, that it was just a yeah. great job in the public history sector, um, which allows me to really engage with the public in a way that you don't often get to when you're working in university life. Yeah. What is it about history that appeals to you? Why did that become, I mean, to get your, you know, oh, my kitty just <laughs> jumped in my lap. Odie. <laughs> Um, what is it that appeals to you to focus all the way up to, you know, up to the PhD level? Why, why choose history? Yeah. So it's a good question. It's something that kind of evolved over time. Um, I thought initially I would go into international development. Actually, I did the Peace Corps and lived abroad for a while. Um, where'd you live? I lived in Burkina Faso, West Africa, next to Ghana. Uh, for two years. And I kind of realized through that experience that you really do have to understand the history of a place to know why people are the way they are and um, what makes uh, a society run. And so um, I just became more involved in learning people's stories and the way that they're often uh, really unexpected and even more interesting than fiction, I think. They often tell us things about ourselves and the ways people can act, um, both good and bad, that are um, often very unbelievable, but they really occurred, and they can tell us how we got to where we are today. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, with regard to the future, you mentioned the um, the taste of Hearst. Mm-hmm. When is that? Does that happen after this will go on December 1st? Could people get involved in that? Could they Could they opt to sign in? We will be announcing dates for that soon. Okay. I hope to be able to do, um, we're planning a Taste of Hearst, another similar event called uh, Paint and Sip, where people will, uh, again, receive a wonderful curated package of everything they would need in order to paint something like the Neptune Pool along with wine and have a professional painter slash instructor and a sommelier there live to take you through that experience. Mm. Um, I'd love to do these at least twice a year. These are really, really special elevated uh, virtual events will also be launching some lecture series soon. Uh, the former historian Victoria Kastner is coming out with a fantastic new book on Julia Morgan. Mm-hmm. So she'll be doing a lecture series. Um, but what we are also planning right now, I can say that we have um, a tentative schedule of proposed events, I think that's safe enough, for 2022, where we'll be hosting fundraisers at the Neptune Pool, the Roman Pool, as well as dinner and theater experiences, which sounds like would be right up your alley. Oh my gosh, how fun is that? So we do champagne at sunset, and then we do a, I believe typically it's a four-course wine-paired dinner in the loggia or sunroom of Casa de Mar Cottage, and then we take guests over to the Hearst Private Theater to show some uh, period films, whether it be Marion Davies, Newsreads, etc., 
lots of fun. Super fun. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk at all about Marion Davies. Did she have any special requests for food? Do you know anything about that? I've not heard anything Ooh. about that. Yeah. Have you? No. New research sure. project. I know. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. What about, what was um, WR's wife's name? Millicent. That's right. Millicent. That's right. Did she have any? Was she ever up there? Yeah, she was she, there. She would visit occasionally, but not often. They were separated um, yeah. for decades, and so she lived on the East Coast primarily. Okay. Um, and then his partner, Marion Davis, lived with Hearst on the on the West Coast and, and all together for the rest of their partnership. How very interesting that all is. There's one last thing I wanted to mention. Um, do you all know about the Welsh rarebit that he would serve? Do you know anything about that? <laughs> I've heard of this. Yeah, I don't know. It's like his midnight snack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So uh, what I read yeah. is he loved to cook with beer. I mean, he wasn't a cook, really, but little snacky-like things. Mm -hmm. So he would put it on toast, I guess. He mm -hmm. would combine cheese and beer and maybe some kind of a spice. I can't remember. Melt it down and then pour it over toast. And he would make that for his guests like really late at night. Huh. up in the kitchen and they would all come in. Sounds like a late night snack. It's yeah. totally, yes. <laughs> it, it reminds me a little bit of like nachos. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I think that we should come up with um, a reproductive um, a reproduction of that recipe and share it with the people. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, a little historical taste. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking about this, you know, larger than life figure here on the Central Coast and the way that he ate. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Like I seem to do at least once per season, I forgot to ask these guests about their final meal. I'm so sorry. So Amy Hart said that she would have an Italian pasta dish with creamy pesto, extra creamy because, hey, it's her last day, and she would pair it with Pinot Noir. She would have her dog, uh, Filbert, and her partner would be there too. Okay, and Tara says that she would have the omakase experience at Treebones Wild Coast Restaurant or her Nana's spinach lasagna and homemade sauce with a side of Italian sausage and peppers. To drink, she would have one of Seth Coonan's Roan blends plus chocolate cake, with fudgy icing for dessert. She'd share it with her partner, Brian, and a few of her closest friends. So there you have it. It's never as much fun to hear me talk about it as it is to hear the guests talk about it. But there you have it. Thank you and apologies to Amy and Tara for blanking on that very important question. That's it for another episode of the Consumed Podcast. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. To learn more about any of the guests you hear on the podcast, visit letsgetconsumed.com. You can also sign up there for the Consumed newsletter, where I share recipes, side stories, and more. Until next time, thank you for getting consumed together with me.